So I'm going to begin with a question this morning. What do Marilyn Monroe, Bill Clinton, John Lennon, Steve Jobs, Edgar Allan Poe, Superman, and Jesus all have in common? Fame? And I'll read that list again because it's a list of some cultural icons. You may have noticed there's an actor, a president, a musician, an innovator, a writer, even a superhero. So think about it. What do Marilyn Monroe, Bill Clinton, John Lennon, Steve Jobs, Edgar Allan Poe, Superman, and Jesus all have in common? The answer is they are all adopted. Every one of them were adopted. And you might not have thought about Jesus as being adopted, but he was. He was adopted by Joseph, who raised him as his son. And this point is often overlooked in the, in the nativity. In fact, Joseph himself is really seen as more of a supporting character. He's just kind of in the background uh, as opposed to a main character in the nativity scene. And that makes sense on some level, right? I mean, you have the miraculous virgin conception of Mary... Right, so there's a ton of, of, of looking at her. She's got a beautiful song in, in Luke 12. There's the appearance of angels in these stories. So it's, it's easy to, to, to kind of gaze on them and see, man, I wish an angel would come and, and visit me like that. There's the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. There's the star of Bethlehem and the magi who come with their gifts. And so in light of all of that, we often forget about Joseph. And the role he played in welcoming into the world Jesus of Nazareth. And so in this, this morning, we're going to look at the nativity scene as told by Matthew's gospel. We just read it out loud. And it tells the story from Joseph's point of view. You see, Joseph wasn't expecting Jesus. He was expecting to marry his high school sweetheart, to live a quiet life in a quiet town as a tradesman. And yet... The coming of Christ brought change and disruption to his plans. And yet that night, as, as, as Joseph finds out about the, the, the coming of Christ, he learned something about Jesus that turned his fear into courage and his doubts into faith. And the other scene, the other nativity scene in Luke, the focus is much more on the birth itself and on Mary. But in this passage, the focus is on the identity of of Jesus and why he has come. The words that the angel gives to Joseph tells him about who Jesus is and why he's come. And what Joseph learned about Jesus that night changed his life. And I think there's relevance there for us that what, Jesus, what Joseph learned can actually change our lives too. And so as we look at Matthew 1, we're going to see that Joseph learned Three things about the coming of Jesus. First, Joseph learned that Jesus came to keep a very old promise. That the, 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 the scriptures are filled with these prophecies and promises and expectations of the coming Messiah. And we're going to see that Jesus came to keep a very old promise. Second, Jesus came to solve a very big problem. We've just been um, walking through the book of Genesis as a church family. And we've seen firsthand the problem in our world. And we're going to see how Jesus solves that very big problem. And third, we're going to see that Jesus came to restore a very needed presence. 
You see, in uh, all of us living in a post-Genesis 3 kind of world are missing the very presence of God. And yet Jesus came to dwell among us and restore a very needed promise. So let's start together in verse 18. And we're going to see how Jesus came to keep a very old promise. Let's look back at verse 18. Matthew writes this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We'll stop right there and talk for a minute. Matthew begins the nativity by introducing us to this couple, Mary and Joseph, who are betrothed. Now, betrothal in first century Judaism and first century Israel doesn't have a direct counterpart in our culture today. You see, in ancient Judaism, betrothal usually lasted about a year and it was legally binding. You know, today when you get engaged, it's not legally binding. You can break off an engagement um, with, you know, with a hard conversation, but it doesn't require a lawyer or some kind of legal action. But in Judaism in the first century, betrothal was legally binding. And if it was going to be broken off, it required a certificate of divorce. And that's also why Matthew calls uh, uh, Mary's husband Joseph, right? He, he already, because it's legally binding, calls Joseph her husband. But that said, it wasn't fully marriage. They weren't cohabitating yet. Marital intimacy was not permitted until after the marriage ceremony. And Matthew is careful to note that they had remained chaste and sexually pure during this betrothal. They had not come together yet. So Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. That is to say she started to show. And it was evident. Now Joseph is not naive. He's not ignorant. He knows how babies are made. And he knows he didn't have anything to do with this baby. He knows he is not the father. Now I want you to, to enter in. We're supposed to, in narrative, to enter into the story. We're supposed to see these characters. We're supposed to feel the things they feel. Imagine how Joseph feels. He's been faithful. And yet, this woman that he loves has not. He feels betrayed. All the plans that he's been making... All the dreams of their life together are over. And as much as he loves Mary and as much as he's committed to her, he can't start his life with Mary and this child who isn't his. Culturally, this is an honor and shame culture. This would have brought a ton of shame onto him. Legally, the law is clear on this matter. Jewish law required a man to divorce an adulterous wife. That's why Matthew tells us that Joseph is just, which means he paid careful attention to observe the law. He was a man of upright character. He was faithful to God's commands. That doesn't mean he was perfect. Nobody is, but he was faithful. At the same time, we know that Joseph was a man of compassion, and he had decided to divorce her quietly. See, men who weren't compassionate, who were vengeful, would use this as an opportunity to put this person on a, a, a public display to shame them for what they've done. But Joseph doesn't want to do that. He wants to do this quietly. 
without the public spectacle to hopefully minimize the amount of shame that she already feels. So being just, on the one hand, he's, a, he's not able to consummate this marriage on the grounds of adultery, but as a compassionate man, he doesn't want to be harsh in the execution of that judgment. I want to pause for a moment and say we could take a lesson out of Joseph's playbook, couldn't we? Justice and compassion are not mutually exclusive. We can pursue means of justice, but we can do so with mercy and compassion. Those aren't mutually exclusive. Now look with me at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Joseph, he's considering his next steps. He's considering about what it means for him to go and get this uh, divorce. And in the night, an angel appears to him in a dream and tells him that Mary is not an adulteress because the child in her womb has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And what's more is the angel tells him, do not be afraid. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And what's amazing about this is that the angel sets the record straight. He tells him Mary has not been unfaithful. And what's more is this angel reminds him of his royal heritage. Did you notice the angel said, Joseph, son of David. And if you read the first chapter before, Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus Christ. I know it's, uh, when we read all those names, we look at them, they're hard to pronounce, some of them. Some of them we, we've never heard of before. And so we tend to just kind of skim over it and skip right over it and say, let me get to the good stuff. But that chapter, that first part of chapter one, Matthew is being careful to tell you, listen, he's not just any child. Joseph's not just any man. He has a royal pedigree. His great, 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 add some great grandfathers is in fact King David, which means Joseph is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because God had made David a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you're a little rusty on 2 Samuel, let's go back together and look at it. In verse 12, when your days are fulfilled, this is uh, uh, God speaking to King David. He said, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away uh, before you. Now at first glance, if you read on in, in, in the, uh, the narrative of the kingdom of Israel, this promise seems to be fulfilled by David's son, King Solomon, right? He said that his child would build for him a house. This is Solomon building the temple of God. Remember, David had asked to build God uh, the temple and he said, no, you've got too much blood on your hands, but I will give you a son who will build a house for me. 
And we know that Solomon had this close father-son type relationship with God. And when Solomon sinned, and he did in some grievous ways, the Lord disciplined him, yet he did not depart from him like he did with Saul. And so at first glance, it seems, hey, all of this has been fulfilled by Solomon. But did you notice that he said, I'll establish your kingdom forever? And in fact, in verse 16, he repeats it. He says this, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times in this promise, God says your kingdom will be forever. But if you go back in history, you look, is Solomon still on his throne? No. In fact, after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel really goes down the drain. And see, at this point in history, at the time of Joseph, a Davidic king was not on the throne. In fact, a monster was on the throne. His name is King Herod, and they were all under the oppressive Roman regime. And in fact, there hadn't been a Davidic king, that is to say a king in David's line, on the throne since 586 B.C., So it's been over 500 years, almost 600 years, since a a Davidic king has been on the throne. When you come across prophecy and promises in Scripture, let me give you a principle that's going to help you try to understand what's going on. Because you see, promises and prophecies in Scripture often have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. What I mean is to say that promises and prophecies uh, uh, in, in Scripture, so you could be reading in, you know, in Isaiah, and in Jeremiah, you might be looking at a, uh, a Messianic prophecy or promise in the Psalms. There's usually a short-term fulfillment, but you'll, you'll read the promises and you'll go, some of it's been fulfilled, yet some of it seems to be anticipating something more. That it has a, a, a view down the halls of history to something or someone coming that's even greater. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There's a partial fulfillment that's, that's hanging. It's like a note that hasn't been resolved and it's waiting for resolution. It's waiting for complete and total fulfillment. And just as a spoiler alert, guys, it's always fulfilled in Christ. And that's exactly what we have going on. This hanging promise in 2 Samuel 7 had grown into this messianic expectation of going, when Messiah comes, the Davidic kingdom will be established forever. And so as the Old Testament saints were longing for the Messiah to come, this had started to become part of that expectation that Messiah would come from the line of David. You can see this in the book of Isaiah. You can see this in the book of Jeremiah. Let's look at Isaiah 11. 11, 11.1, the prophet writes this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, if you look in the history books, you'll find that David's father is named Jesse. And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. He's saying the stump of Jesse has been laid bare. 
This prophecy in Isaiah gives us a great picture of what's happened to the Davidic line. See, the tree of David's kingdom has fallen. When Judah is conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC, it's like his kingdom has been chopped like a tree. So, so when, when you go and you cut down a tree, what's left is the stump. It's been cut down and it's devastated. But the stump remains. And at first glance, when you see a stump, what do you think? You think it's dead, right? You think it's, it, 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 it's, it's taken a, 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 a lethal blow. And it may lay dormant for years, but given enough time, if you leave that stump alone, what happens? Eventually, a shoot comes forth. Maybe it's on the side, maybe it's on the top. Why? Because the roots underground are alive and well. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying. He's picking up on this promise in 2 Samuel 7 and saying, look, it looks like the Davidic kingdom is devastated. But the roots underneath are alive and well. And one day a shoot will come forth and that shoot will become a branch and that branch will become a tree and that tree will bear fruit. Now listen to how Isaiah goes on to describe this root of Jesse. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Do you see what uh, Isaiah is describing here? This king is going to be a different kind of king. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. He is wise in understanding as he walks in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He holds the wicked accountable. He judges righteously. The meek are treated with equity He is the very definition of justice. Then listen how Isaiah goes on to describe the ministry and the impact of his ministry. He says, then the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Now I know that's a lot of scripture and I'm not a zoologist, but I know that wolves and lambs don't hang out together. It ends poorly for the lamb. And I know that no good parent would put their little child over the cobra's den, right? What it's describing here is a kingdom of peace where conflict has been resolved. No hurting, no destruction in all 
my holy mountain. And do you see the glory of the Lord extending to the ends of the earth? This is the kind of kingdom that no earthly king could bring. Isaiah is looking forward down through the halls of history at Jesus Christ. Now what does all of this have to do with Joseph? Well see, Jesus is not biologically born in the line of David. His humanity is derived from Mary, right? But Joseph takes Mary as his wife and then does what? Adopts Jesus as his own. So here's what happens when Joseph adopts Jesus. He legally becomes his son. And by adoption, Jesus inherits the Davidic pedigree. Adoption by Joseph secures Jesus' lineage that comes from the line of David. This is why Mary couldn't have just married any random guy. He had to come from the line of David so that he could be adopted, so that he would have the line and pedigree of David, so that these prophecies written 700 years before the event would come to fulfillment. See, when the angel told Joseph to name this child Jesus, the act of naming is not inconsequential. You see, in this culture, naming is only done by the parent. And so when the angel tells Joseph, you are to name him, it's effectively saying, you be his father and you take your rightful place as his father and give him this name. Matthew, uh, in verse 25 Matthew tells us, and Joseph named the child Jesus. By taking on this responsibility to name Jesus, he's taking on the responsibility to raise Jesus as his own. In fact, later on in Matthew, uh, some people are talking about Jesus and they say, hey, isn't that Joseph's son? The son of a carpenter, right? He was recognized and known as his son. And adopted sons in both Jewish and Roman society had the full legal Writes. It's as if they had been born biologically from them. And so when Joseph adopted Jesus, he became, Jesus, the true, rightful, and legal heir to the throne of his now adopted great, 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 add some great grandfather, David. Now you might be saying, hey, Clint, that's a really good history lesson. Man, great Bible connections. I see what you did there. But how does that impact me today? Well, here's how. God is faithful to his word, every one of them. There is not an unfulfilled promise. There is not a hanging prophecy that will not be fulfilled. When God makes a promise, he is good and faithful to his word. Now, it's always fulfilled according to his timing. It's always fulfilled according to his will. But when God makes a promise, it is as good as done. You and I, when we make promises, even with the best of intentions, there's like this asterisk on it that says, you know, barring anything beyond my control, I am going to fulfill this promise. That's a promise made with the best of intentions. When God makes a promise... There are no asterisks next to it. 
There's no caveats. There's no, well, if this happens. No, no. God is sovereign and in complete control. There is nothing that moves him. When God makes a promise, he is faithful to see it all the way. And that should compel us to know his promises, to trust in his promises, because he will make good on those promises. I mentioned earlier that Advent is a season of waiting. We look back on how the Old Testament saints longed and looked forward to the first coming of Christ. And now that he has come, we, as the New Testament saints, look forward to a second coming when he will make all things new. And I know it's easy to look around and get discouraged at how hard life is or how bad things are going. And it's easy to assume God will not make good on his promise to come again and to bring restoration and newness. But the story of Advent reminds us that God always keeps his promises. Jesus came to keep a very old promise. That's the first thing that Joseph learned The second is this, Jesus came to solve a very big problem. Look at verse 21. The angel goes on to say, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. This angel goes on to tell Joseph that he's to give this child a name, and it's the name Jesus, which in Hebrew means Yahweh saves, or God brings salvation, Yeshua. And the explanation the angel gives matches the name, right? The name means God saves. And then he gives this explanation. He says, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, whenever salvation is talked about, it's something said that only God can do. It says that God will bring salvation. Here's one example in Psalm 130, verse 8. And he, God, will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. See, God promises Israel a rescue from sin and that he will do it. And later on, centuries later, he sends Jesus to accomplish that salvation. Like I said, this is um, said over and over in the Old Testament that God will bring salvation. And this is one of the many times in the New Testament that what was said of God in the Old Testament, what is said that only God can do, is quite naturally and unambiguously applied to Jesus which is another evidence of his divinity. If only God can bring salvation and Jesus brings salvation, do the logical math. Jesus is God. Now, what is sin? It's the problem of every human being. So it's good to have a definition of it. And I like how J.I. Packer defines it. He says this, sin is lawlessness in relation to God as lawgiver, rebellion in relation to God as the rightful ruler, Missing the mark in relation to God as our designer. Guilt in relation to God as judge. And uncleanness in relation to God as the Holy One. Sin is a perversity touching each one of us at every point in our lives. There's a pervasiveness to sin. But it's not simply actions Though we do commit sinful actions, the poison of sin has made its way into our hearts so that our very thoughts, our intentions, our desires are affected by it. That's why Paul David Tripp says the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The reason why we sin is because our our hearts are sick with sin 
And from a sick heart, we commit acts of sin. The damages of our sin bring about a cataclysmic brokenness that affects humanity and our relationship with God and with creation itself. That's why every one of us, when we assess the world around us, say it's broken. That's why there's conflict all around us. That's why even our best intentions never uh, measure up. It's why our work is often frustrated and difficult. That's why no matter how how hard we try, we can't change by simply modifying our behavior because there's a problem inside the heart. That's why things like anger management don't work. In fact, when I first became aware that one of my besetting sins was anger, I thought I can manage this. I can just make some calculated changes, white knuckle it for a while, and that will solve the problem. The problem is you can only manage things for so long. Management doesn't change the problem. You have to change the heart because true change and true healing comes when our hearts are changed. And you and I are completely inadequate to perform a heart transplant on ourselves. Can you imagine talking with a friend who needs a heart transplant and you've been thrilled to hear that they've been, uh, they're, they're going to be the recipient of a new heart. They've been bumped up on the transplant list and they tell you, hey, I'm getting a new heart. And you're saying, man, that's wonderful. Who's doing the surgery? And they say, I am. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to hook myself up on the anesthesia. I'm going to cut right open, split it open, put one in, put one out. It should be a fairly easy procedure. The doctor over here is just laughing at behind her mask, right? Because it's impossible. Nobody would ever even dream of being able to give themselves their own heart transplant. But that's exactly what we're trying to do when we try to change ourselves on our own. We're trying to do our own heart surgery and we're completely inadequate to do it. Only God can do it. And that's what Jesus, the God-man, came to do. Jesus is the great physician who fulfills the promise of Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, this is God speaking, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Here's this, the heart transplant. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to take the broken heart and give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to obey my rules. This is why Jesus said all throughout his ministry, Mark 2, 17, things like this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to bring healing, to do a heart transplant for those who are sick with sin. That's what Paul knew. He said it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. I love the way Ann Voskamp captures the season of Advent. She says, Advent doesn't deny the dark within us. 
Advent isn't afraid of the dark around us. Advent doesn't rush through the dark ahead of us. Advent sits in the dark and yearns for the light of the only one who went to the tree of Calvary to shatter the dark for all of us. Friends, it is highly unlikely that Joseph put all of that together in that moment, in that dream. We have the vantage point on this side of history, on this side of the cross to know that Jesus gave his life so that we might live. He is the heart transplant donor, in other words. By faith, even without knowing all the details, Joseph knew that this child was bringing about an end to sin. And that simple fact changed everything for him. Now, did that solve all of his problems? No. Joseph lived in a small town who had already made up their minds about them, that either he and Mary didn't wait until their wedding day or worse, that Mary had been unfaithful. And we don't see that side of the story, but you know they got those glances. You know they got those looks. You know that people stopped whispering when they walked by them in the market. They would live knowing that public opinion about them wouldn't change. The angel doesn't go to the town and say, hey, they've been faithful. They're welcoming in Jesus, the savior of the world. Didn't happen that way. But Joseph knew that his greatest problem was going to be solved by this child. And friends, when your biggest problem is solved, all other problems pale in comparison. I know our church is facing difficult days right now. Every one of us lives under the the stress and the tension of a global pandemic. I know as one of your pastors, some of you have experienced job loss. I know some of you are living under the stress and the weight of financial uncertainty. We have medical issues in our congregation. Some of them are quite serious and require very difficult surgeries. Some uh, of us are experiencing chronic and life-changing diagnoses. We have parents doing their very best to raise children. We have marriages that need repair. We have all sorts of problems. But friends, no problem you face right now is bigger than the problem of sin. It's the greatest problem that has ever plagued humanity. And friends, Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered the grave. And because of that, you can face any problem you face today. Friends, Jesus came to keep a very old promise. And he came to solve a very big problem. And finally, this passage shows us that Jesus came to restore a very needed presence. Look with me at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, I know that we recently preached through Genesis 3, so the fall of humanity is fresh on our minds. But friends, remember, Genesis 3 is always in our rear view. 
Every one of us, every single day, experiences life east of Eden. Every one of us lives as exiles. And the great tragedy of Genesis 3 is that this communion between God and man has been lost. It's not simply just that we were kicked out of the garden, but in getting kicked out of the garden, we've lost our access to this dwelling communion and presence with God. And that's what it means for us to be exiled. Every one of us lives with this underlying and unexplainable sense of loss. There's always this nagging sense that we're not home. That even when everything is um, going well, there's just this tinge of uncertainty. There's this tinge that it's not quite right. And we know that apart from God's intervention, we don't know our way back. And if you become a student of all other religions, one thing you're going to find is that in all other religions, humanity is given this task, this quest to make their way back to God. It outlines the path that you have to follow. It gives you the moral parameters and then it says, good luck, I hope you get there. But Christianity is remarkably distinctive because in Christianity, We don't make our way to God. God makes his way to us. God comes to us. And all of this is wrapped up in this beautiful Hebrew word, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. And friends, Emmanuel, God with us, is not a prayer. It's not saying, God, would you please come be with us? Matthew is writing it as a statement. God has come to be with us. It's not a prayer, it's a statement. And remarkably as well, he's come to us as a baby boy. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. See, this child is born of the Virgin Mary, but Isaiah tells us a son is given to us. Listen to this helpful explanation by Dr. Tony Evans. Keep in mind that the child is born, but the son is given. This is because the son existed before the child was born. The virgin gave birth to a child, but the child that the virgin birthed existed before the virgin ever got pregnant. Therefore, the son was given, not born. And if you have any doubt that this child is fully God, the New Testament shatters that doubt. In Colossians 1.15, we read, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And John 1, "In in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And no one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, has made him God known. Somehow, the infinite God, the God who is outside of time, the God who is distinct from his creation, enters in. He enters in to be God with us. 
Dan Doriani writes, the title, God with us, is also a promise. And the wonderful truth it expresses is, I am with you, which appears three times in Matthew, here to explain the incarnation. Next, as Jesus teaches the apostles, and finally, a strength for the Great Commission, Jesus is God with us in every moment, great and small, regardless of our circumstances, and no matter how great the trial or temptation, we can all know with heart-calming assurance that our God is with us. Friends, God with us means he will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us in every moment, great and small. And this is meant to calm our hearts, still our fears. It's meant to give us assurance that we are never alone. God with us also means that God knows us because God has shared in our nature. He has walked in our sorrows and our suffering. Charles Spurgeon once said, Emmanuel, God with us is our, he's in, God with us in our nature and our sorrow and our life work and our punishment and our grave and now with us or rather we with him in resurrection, ascension, triumph and second advent splendor. Friends, Joseph heard those words, God with us, and it changed him. Again, he wouldn't have been able to pull all this together, but he made a decision in that moment based on faith, beyond what his eyes could see, and he became obedient to all that God had commanded him. Think of the vantage point we have on this side of history from this point of Scripture. We know so much more than Joseph knew. The point of this text is not, hey, so be like Joseph. The point of this text is to behold what Joseph beheld. That's the point of this text. In all his circumstances and all his uncertainty, in his need, what did Joseph do? He looked to Jesus. And in Jesus, he found the God who transcends all circumstances, the God who controls every uncertainty, to the God who provides for our every single need. Joseph learned that his bride had been faithful to God and that through them he was bringing his plan of redemption to pass. He knew that in this child, the promise of a righteous forever king fulfilling all the longing of the promise to David was going to be fulfilled. He knew that in this child, salvation for sin was going to be accomplished. And in this child, God was going to dwell with his people again. Friends, this Advent, let's look to Jesus because he kept a very big and important promise. He has solved our very great problem and he does restore a very needed presence let's pray